Welcome to the Charvuk Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Terry Malevsky. Terry is a veteran Canadian journalist. Uh, Terry's been... Uh, if you're a Canadian or an Indian in Canada, you know who Terry is. Terry is known for uh, his wonderful work at CBC for, I think, more than 40 years. Uh, if, uh, again, you know, uh, the most recognized of them, at least from an Indian perspective, is the 2006 uh, six, uh, six documentary uh, on the Air India bombing. And uh, But today we're going to be talking about Terry's book, which is called Blood for Blood, 50 Years of the Global Khalistan Project. Terry, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. So Terry, I want to ask you this first question. I think it would be unfair to ask you why did you write a book on this because it's quite obvious your career, your whole career has spanned where you've covered this in detail. But I do want to start with this. Why the title, Blood for Blood? Can you tell us why? Um, it was one of the most striking pieces of evidence when they finally started, decades late, uh, the criminal trial in the Air India bombing. And they showed a videotape of Arjit Singh Bagri who was number two in the Canadian Baba Khalsa group founded by Talwinda Pama, who, as you know, was the leader of the Kanishka bomb plot. And <clears throat> Bagri had to step in at the last minute for Pama at the founding convention of the World Sikh Organization at Madison Square Garden in New York on July 28th of 1984. And obviously, you realize that that's a very critical date. This was right after the army's invasion of the Golden Temple uh, <clears throat> and uh, prior to the assassination of Indira Gandhi, for which the crowd at Madison Square Garden at the WSL convention howled. Uh, <clears throat> Indira bitch, death to her, they chanted as Bagri made his speech. Bagri, uh, Bagri's speech was extremely interesting <clears throat> for many reasons, one of which was that he never really made any argument for why the Sikhs should have a separate state or what that separate state should look like, like how it should be governed and so forth. Never talked about any of that. It was all about revenge. He wanted blood for blood. And so did the crowd. It was a packed house at Madison Square Garden. Hundreds of angry Sikhs were there. And they chanted, they interrupted Bagri, they chanted, blood for blood, as well as these other chants, such as Hindu dogs, death to them, Indira bitch, death to her, and so forth. Uh, this uh, taught everyone something, that uh, this was about revenge. This was about a very elemental, a very basic human impulse to get revenge. They wanted revenge uh, for the attack on the Golden Temple. And this summed up so much about uh, the, uh, the rationale, if you can call it a rationale, behind what followed the assassination of Indira Gandhi and the, and, and the ferocious insurgency, which, as you know, took uh, 21,000 lives in the 1980s and the early 90s in Punjab. So th that seemed to me uh, an appropriate title because it's, it, it tells you where it started. It started with this cry for revenge. So, Terry, let's pick up from here. Um, arguably, one of the most horrific incidences in the history of uh, Canada was the Air India bombing. Uh, 
you know, I, I think at that point of time, it must have been the single largest terror incident, maybe in North America before 9-11 came across. Uh, but we obviously, I mean, e- even in your book, you talk about it, the 21,000 plus lives that are lost in India. I mean, these are just government statistics. I'm sure the real number would probably increase that when it comes to lives lost in India. And then we have the lives lost in Canada. But uh, if I was to ask you, you you've spent so many years covering this subject. So there was the Indian side and the Indian coverage. And then there is the Canadian side and the Canadian coverage. When you look at it today, and I know you talk about it in the book also, but I still wanted to maybe hear this out from you. How do you think has been the coverage of from the Indian perspective or the Indian side or what's happening in India? And how do you think has the coverage in on the Canadian side been? So well, what, what contrast could you see? Well, I think uh, the most salient point is the similarity in the extent to which both of them were feeble, lousy, pathetic in some cases. And by that, I mean that Broadly speaking, when Air India blew up off the coast of Ireland, killing uh, 329 passengers and crew, most of them Indo-Canadians, including 33 Sikhs, by the way, uh, India thought it was Canada's problem, and Canada thought it was India's problem. We wanted nothing to do with it. The Canadian government uh, didn't want to take an interest. The Canadian government sent condolences to Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi, as he then was, and... Uh, wanted to dispute that there was even a bomb on the plane in order to to avoid liability for the bombing. Uh, And Canada had a lot of blame to to try to avoid because, of course, as you know, they had the uh, bombing suspects under surveillance for months before the bombing and still didn't figure out what they were up to in time. And on the Indian side, well, you know, let's face it, to be blunt about it, India had its own problems at the time. I mean, thousands of people were dying in Punjab, and a few hundred Canadians were added to that appalling death toll. Well, that, that's terrible, but they're mostly Canadians. And it was, a, for both countries, it was far away on the other side of the world and invisible. The plane went down in the sea, two kilometers down, never saw the wreckage, and most of the bodies were never recovered. So for those reasons, there was a, a, a lack of interest um, and a lack of coverage on both sides. I was sent to cover uh, the, the crash, as we thought it was, uh, and went to Ireland. I was there the next day and for a few days thereafter, uh, speaking to the families and trying to figure out what went on. And then after that, we forgot about it. I had some other story. We all did. And it, it wasn't... there was a sense in Canada that it wasn't us. These were brown-skinned Indo-Canadians. They were kind of really Indians. Canada did not take ownership, as it should have, of this disaster. And the investigation wandered. It was botched. Wiretaps of the suspects were deleted. There were many other scandals, warnings that were ignored. And the thing was uh, left to fester. The only the bomb maker was convicted. Uh, Palmar, the mastermind of the plot, uh, fled the country uh, after it seemed likely that the police were getting close. 
and fled to Pakistan, from which he launched attacks in Punjab. And he was, as you know, killed by the police in Punjab in 1992. So he was gone 30 years ago, nearly. And uh, so, uh, well, I guess we don't have to have a trial now. So there was no trial, other than the case of the bomb maker, Rayat, there was no trial uh, until 2000, when they finally got around to charging a couple of other guys. And the, the, uh, the trial was, in, in my view, badly mishandled. Uh, at any rate, they end, it ended in acquittals. And uh, today we have this amazing situation. It's really grotesque, where the, the, the worst mass murder in Canadian history, Parmar, the author of the Kanishka bomb plot, is treated and honored and glorified as a hero by hardcore Khalistanis in Canada. To this day, there are big pictures of him up. Shaheed, Jatidar, Bai, Talvinder Singh. Uh, he's held up as a great man, a hero, a martyr of the Sikh nation, and a model for Sikh youth. So it hasn't gone away. The story's not over. Yeah, I, I just want to touch upon this. You mentioned this in the book too, where uh, it was 185 or 180 Canadians in that all uh, in the entire list too. Even amongst the 300, there were like 185 Canadian citizens. If, if I remember, 280. Uh, yeah, 280. I'm yeah. sorry. So even amongst that, there was this disparity of these are Canadian citizens and that, and even within the Canadian citizens, then we have this hierarchy. But do you think if if it was not brown 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 people? Uh, yeah, they would have taken it more seriously? Well, I think it's a fair question. Uh, I think that, you know, if, if you flip it around, imagine that an Air Canada plane full of white people from Toronto had been blown up by some gang of lunatics. Uh, I somehow doubt, you don't have to be very cynical to share this doubt, that it would have been treated in the same lackadaisical way with this sense that, well, you know, it's really not our problem. It's some conflict in India. Let the Indians worry about it. I think it would have been handled differently. Yes, I do. But that's fascinating, right? Uh, wasn't it in the 1970s, if I remember, 1976, to be precise? I could be wrong. Please correct me. Uh, when multiculturalism became an official uh, uh, kind of a policy of the Canadian government or the Canadian essence or race on that. Uh, even after that, maybe it's not reflecting or what was just to say we believe in multiculturalism? Yeah, well, policy and practice is sometimes different, aren't they? And uh, you're right. There, there was this official policy of multiculturalism introduced by the first Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, and uh, in many respects, it didn't take I mean, uh, to this day, here we are at the end of 2021, and many Canadians are still not even aware that there is a small minority in Canada that thinks the Air India bomber is a big hero. They don't even know about this. Why don't they know about it? Because no fuss is made about it. It's been normalized. So, Terry, obviously you, you, you raised this issue if I remember in 2006 through that famous documentary, I mean, I remember that time for, for friends and family in Canada actually they're telling us, oh, we have this documentary, you know, it has come and discovered. But now, now I want to ask you two questions. So in 2006, you obviously showed 
the audiences in Canada and maybe outside Canada a glimpse into this ideology and this movement that is festering in Canada and it has its tentacles in the United States of America it has its tentacles in the United Kingdom obviously inside in India uh, but in the case of India Indians actually know about what's happening in India but I don't know how many Indians are really okay now in the age of the internet maybe we interact with each other a lot more there is Twitter there is Facebook there is YouTube but at that time Terry and now I'm going to bring you to the book and I want to compare these two scenarios now what was the response like maybe when you did that series and when you covered these things at that I clearly remember one of those questions where you ask I forgot the name of the the sixth gentleman where you talk about the jacket which had the symbols of guns on it and and the reply was so nonchalant was like well it's just a image of the gun but the symbol was of a banned organization so could you tell us how was the response then say today in in comparison to today when you've written a far more detailed book i think it it gets uh, probably a larger audience on youtube today than it did then uh and I, i'm grateful to my uh khalistani friends who are very angry about that documentary to this day <laughs> and constantly make a fuss about it uh and have doubled its audience uh, i i really couldn't ask for better advertising um every time they trash it uh, more people go and click on it and they say oh that's interesting um the uh, the response uh, to that documentary however um was uh, muted in the political echelon and the reason for that is it goes to the heart of, uh, of what i think you may be getting at uh, all the parties play the same game they all benefit from vote bank politics by which i mean you can count on a whole block of votes uh which power brokers will bring to you in return for favors granted uh and all the parties regardless of left or right uh, play the same game of pandering to uh blocks who at least claim to represent the entire Sikh community they don't uh but they say they do uh, and uh, they're careful to look impressive and to speak loud so uh, the politicians tend not to pay a price for pandering to these people uh they they benefit from it and so no one party will call out another party for playing footsie with uh Khalistanis uh because they do it themselves and so there's a there's almost a pact between the parties let's not go there it, d- don't attack me for pandering to these people because you do the same thing so i'll be quiet about you you be quiet about me and uh, uh, to some extent that documentary if you recall was about the penetration uh into the political parties Uh, of the Khalistani movement uh and um it, it it showed i think that uh there was there was simply no guts on the part of the polit- polit- politicians to say what needed to be said namely no unless you take down the pictures of martyred assassins and murderers carrying ak47s 
from the Vaisakhi parade floats going through the streets of British Columbia every year. Unless you take those down, I'm not going to your parade to smile and wave and hustle for votes. Nobody had the guts to do that. Well, there were a few, notably a couple of local Sikh politicians who were mentioned in the documentary. As you know, Ujjal Assange, um, who was uh, briefly the premier, the chief minister, if you will, of British Columbia, also federal cabinet minister, minister of health in, uh, in the liberal government, and also Dave Heyer, the son of a murdered witness at the Air India trial, Tara Singh Heyer, the publisher who... Uh, uh, witness who was an important witness, witness but was murdered before he could testify. Those are a couple of politicians who, by the way, proved that it's wrong to think that you have to pander to the Kalisanis in order to get elected in Canada because Dessange stood four square against them through his entire career and was elected and re-elected for 20 years. Dave Hare was elected and re-elected for 12 years. So... Um, the reaction was not what one might have hoped, that the politicians would say, you know what, this is going too far. I might benefit electorally by saying, no, I'm not going to your Vaisakhi parade if you're showing pictures of Tovinda Palma. You can't, you know, that's, it's not illegal. There's nothing illegal about saying, I want Khalistan, and I, or, or, or even about saying, I think Palmar is a great hero. Nothing illegal about that, but you don't have to endorse it. If you're going to say, well, they have freedom of speech, fine. So do you. You have the freedom of speech to denounce it. Let's see you use that freedom. Yeah, uh, uh, just to share an anecdote, uh, um, you know, my first, when I went to Canada, I clearly remember I was first staying in Mississauga, and I think there was a Gurdwara in a Sikh temple in Malton. And when I went there, it was a very normal thing, right? If you're a Punjabi, it doesn't matter if you're a Hindu or a Sikh, you go to a Gurdwara. It's not a major thing. In, you know, it's just we are a very plural culture in that sense. And I saw the photos of the gentleman you said, and I saw the photo of Pindranwala. And look, for me growing up, Pindranwala was the bad man. And when I saw his photo in the... By the way, I did not see these things in India. I mean, we've gone to Gurdwaras in Mumbai too sometimes, but we never saw these things here. It it shook me to my inner core. So it, I don't think, Terry, people in India, they, they might have a superficial understanding of how it is in Canada. And and so there, there is this internet image that either everybody is a Khalistani, which is so disgusting. I mean, I don't know how to uh, explain it to those people that no, it's not. But what is this case, Terry, that's such a minuscule minority within the community? Because I clearly remember even at that time, I was just a 21, 22-year-old. And when I used to ask my Sikh friends, I was like, how do you guys tolerate this? He's like, uh, we don't want to talk about it. You know, some people get mad and then they, they come to our houses. This was like a proper bullying system organized inside the community. And everybody who raises their voice is bullied. But Terry, just to give people a brief idea of Canadian politics, could you explain the Canadian political landscape so that maybe the listeners and the viewers of this podcast get a benefit out of that? Well, you're right that um, there has been uh, a, a, a bullying culture which has become embedded in Canadian politics. And as we've already discussed... Uh, politicians are wary of going against it. They, they, they fear that they may pay a price. They don't really understand the issues, and they don't have to to get elected. 
They just have to say, okay, fine, I'm going to go to the parade. I didn't know anything about who these pictures were. I, I didn't know any of that. The reason it's uh, salient now, though, is because 30 years after the whole movement basically fizzled out in India, I mean, you can't get elected in Punjab as a separatist. You can run. Uh, Simranjit Singh Man did run candidates in the last Punjab election in 2017, and they got there that much above zero in votes. They got 0.3% of the vote, a tiny fraction of 1%. So they just barely beat zero. Uh, 30 years later, nevertheless, we have the addition of social media to the mix. And what's happening is that uh, the, the Khalistani movement has become extremely adept <clears throat> at how, how to fight when you're weak. The social media amplifies the voices of the weak in a way that they couldn't in 1984, didn't exist. Now though, there is a movement to rewrite the history of these events, a movement to hold up Talvinder Palmar as a hero. Not only that, but if you look at the internet advertising and promotion, the propaganda of, uh, for example, Sikhs for Justice, which is running a, a, a referendum on Sikh sovereignty right now today, uh, it's already started. They had some voting in London. If you look at their propaganda, you will see that they uh, 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 glorify a whole range of martyred murderers. They, uh, they glorify the assassins of Indira Gandhi, the assassins of General Vaidya, the assassins of Chief Minister Bayan Singh in 1995 in Punjab, and so on. And they threaten that the same fate may await today's Indian politicians, today's chief ministers in Punjab, uh, if, if they don't accommodate the Khalistani agenda, if they try to crack down on the Khalistani movement. And uh, while they glorify those who committed atrocities on their side, they uh, inflate their grievances against the other side by saying that India is a fascist and genocidal government, uh, that uh, there's an ongoing genocide of the Sikhs, uh, and that the abuses uh, committed, the undoubted abuses, there were horrendous abuses by the Punjab police back in the day, that they were even worse than reported at the time. Uh, and so this amplifies their voice and uh, they are succeeding to a large degree in passing on these old hatreds to the next generation. And this is where it gets quite worrying. Uh, I, I mentioned, I think, in the book, an anecdote of, uh, I mentioned Tara Singh Heyer, the murdered witness. His son, Dave Heyer, the one who was elected uh, repeatedly uh, in British Columbia as a provincial politician, he tells the story of a young girl, a young Sikh girl, he thinks she was maybe 14, 15 years old, who told him... Mr. Hale, why is it that you refer to the Air India bombers as terrorists when they're really heroes? They're heroes, she said. And he was amazed and said, well, what are you talking about? What about the victims? What about their families? You ever think of that? And she said, no, I didn't think of that. Well, where has she learned that? Where has she learned that? What about the uh, the, the Sikh uh, taxi driver 
who picked me up at the courthouse during the trial. Young guy. Oh, yeah. No, no, no beard. Uh, not really much of a Punjabi accent at all. He said he's a Sikh from Punjab, but secular. And he uh, looks over his shoulder. after He recognizes me from the television. He looks over his shoulder as he drives me home and says, well, you know, one thing about Malik, that is the financier of the Baba Khalsa, one thing about Malik, he said, is he got revenge. Revenge against vacationing school children. Revenge against 33 Sikh passengers on Air India. Revenge against Canadian vacationers. Uh, so this madness has successfully been planted in the next generation of Khalistanis in British Columbia. I do not say that they're anything close to a, a number significant enough to make a serious movement out of this, to make a dent in the low esteem in which they're held in Punjab, and to make a significant showing even in the current referendum. But I do say they are something to worry about because they are teaching children lies. You know, something that I did not know, and I only actually found out through your work, was... Babar Khalsa, which was, if let me check, it, this is one of the, you know, as we are on the subject of madness. So <laughs> they banned Babar Khalsa in the 80s, but, but I think it was CSIS, right, that banned Babar Khalsa, but it was what? They did not outlaw them till 2003. And then, you know, let's talk about how the investigation now of the Air India bombing went ahead in Canada. Now, one can't, I don't know how else to put it, one can't help but get, you know, mad and angry. When, when, my, when I was reading your book, that's the only emotion that came to me. Like, you look at Canada, you know, we're used to justice not being served in India. I don't know how to, my Indian viewers are going to be angry. Oh, look at him insulting India in front of a Canadian. I don't care. Uh, I am saying as it is, it is what it is. Let's face the facts. But when you read about this happening in Canada and you know, you have this image about justice has to be served. It's a mature democracy. It's a democracy for so many years. How can they botch things up like the tapes are gone, uh, this is not there, and then, then minute legal excuses are made, and then there is open bullying happening. So ca can we talk about this aspect of how Canada itself has dealt with the, the entire investigation itself? Well, uh, uh, you make it sound pretty bad, uh, I, I, and my answer to you is that it's actually worse. You're being too kind, if you can imagine that. Let, let me mention one or two things. Uh, first, the trial, which I said earlier I thought was badly mishandled. Let me just give you one brief anecdote to illustrate that, to illustrate how much worse it really is than you thought. Uh, I, I, I mentioned in the book the story of the lady friend of Ajab Singh Bagri, Parmar's number two in the bomb plot, she told a CSIS, uh, that is the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, a, an intelligence officer, not a policeman. He brought her some Indian sweets and uh, buttered her up a bit. And she 
relented and told her story of how the night before the bombs were checked in, two suitcases at Vancouver Airport, there was a banging on her door and it was Bagri coming late at night saying, I need to borrow your car. Why? It's late. What do you, what do you, what do you? And he said, well, I, I need the car to take bags to the airport, but don't worry, I'll bring the car back because I'm not going anywhere, only the bags are. Oh, that's interesting. Then he added, but if I get caught, you will never see me again. Oh, so she knew he was up to no good. Fast forward now many years and they subpoena her to testify at the trial. Bagri is one of the accused. And she says, I'm not, I, I don't remember this. Well, of course she doesn't remember it because he has threatened to kill her. She is quite sure that if she opens her mouth, then she and or her two children will be murdered. Tara Singhayer again was murdered. It wasn't a fantasy. So she refused to repeat her story. Now, she had repeated it to the intelligence officer. She had signed statements that he had reported it correctly. His notes were available. He was available to testify. He gave the whole account of the story that she had told, this damning story that she had told. And the judge threw it all out because we could not rely on this evidence because she wouldn't repeat it on the witness stand. In other words, the Canadian justice system rewarded and incentivized the intimidation of witnesses. If you're charged with murder, you know what to do. Threaten to kill the witness, they'll shut up and the judge will say, oh, okay, no evidence. It's fine. You, you go free. So that's why I say, uh, you know, when you dig into the details, that's just one example. But many other cases, by the way, in addition to Air India, where, where, where Khalistani terrorists got off. There was one in Hamilton. There was one in Montreal. I'll spare you the details. But, but, but believe me, uh, Canada was indeed the place where uh, terrorism cases went to die. Uh, there's always some way to get off. Now, in fairness, uh, let me just add one thing to all, you know, that, that's a pretty harsh indictment. Let me just add one thing. Remember that we're not talking about 2021 after 9-11 and God knows how many other horrors. We're talking about 1985. And mm -hmm. at the time, people didn't think about taking off their shoes to get on a plane and the imminent danger that it might be blown up at any moment. Uh, people didn't think about even the, the, the incredible stupidity of allowing an unaccompanied bag onto a plane. You can't do that nowadays. If you, if you miss the flight, they'll take the bag off before they take off. But uh, in those days, it wasn't like that. And so to some extent, we have to make some allowances uh, for the failures of the Canadian authorities to stop the bombing in the first place and to punish it and to deliver some measure of justice to the families after the bombing. But I won't go further than that. I mean, it, 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 there were examples of stupidity. I mean, for example, 
the policy said that if there's no crime on the audio tape when you've got a wiretap on a suspect, if there's no crime, after a certain amount of time, you're supposed to erase the tape. Otherwise, you're invading the privacy of Canadian citizens. Yeah. So, they, so they did that after they knew that the guy on the tape, Palmar, was the prime suspect in the worst terrorist attack in history until 9-11. So, uh, yes, we can make allowances, but no, <clears throat> let's not take it too far. Let's face it. Canada failed the Air India victims and continues to do so by its tolerance for Khalistani propaganda, such as the martyr posters of the Air India bomber. Yeah, but th this this aspect of Canadian politics actually bothers me so much that um, obviously even in the in the in the doc in the documentary you show that particular scene where uh, I think it was Harper who was trying to read something and he gets shouted down. I mean, look, uh, as you said, <laughs> whether it's the Canadian Conservatives, whether it's the Liberal Party, or whether it's today the NDP, I mean, nobody can really, you know, say, uh, come out of this uh, squeaky clean. But like, I remember, I, I mean, we have to talk about it. I remember you were talking to Natasha Fatah, I think it was three years ago, when uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had come to India. And it was, I don't know, that was, uh, A, I don't know why he was doing Pangra. Okay, stop dancing, man. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> it was extremely annoying, I can tell you, as a Punjabi. <laughs> It was extremely annoying to see him, you know, wearing uh, those outfits and doing Pangra. It was just, I don't know what he was doing. But, I mean, it was kind of insulting where, you know, Chief Minister Amrinder Singh refuses to even speak with them. Uh, as far as I know, I think Jagmeet Singh even today cannot travel to India. If my memory serves me correctly, Jagmeet cannot come to India. I could be wrong, but that's what I remember. How the hell... Can every single political outfit in Canada, and and I, uh, and if and you can disagree with me, but it just seems to me that the Liberals and NDP, and it was you, and you mentioned that interview you had with Jagmeet Singh, and where you keep on asking him, and I remember watching that interview, too. You keep on asking Jagmeet Singh, so what do you think about it? And it's as if you know, Jagmeet uh, Singh keeps on going, wait, what? Uh, are you speaking English? I, uh, you know, the, this almost sounds like that whole Punjabi thing, not to know English, don't know what you're talking about kind of the thing. But it was ridiculous. But why would they do that? I mean, I've read surveys in Canada that actually the amount of Khalistanis inside the Canadian Sikh diaspora is barely anything. At, at the worst case scenario, if I remember correctly, reading a survey, they are like, what, 10 to 12%. So, which means most of the Canadian Sikhs are not Khalistanis. When you know they're not Khalistanis, why would you do the same thing? W what does it say about the politics in Canada? Would they be doing the same for terror, uh, you know, terror sympathizers in every other religious or non-religious denomination then? Well, uh, I don't know the answer to that last question, but I do know that <clears throat> um, resisting the Khalistani propaganda uh, can be bad for your health. Um, it, it's, um, it's not easy if you're a young politician, newly elected to lead, for example, as Jagmeet Singh was, 
uh, a left-wing party, which, you know, the best they can hope for is what they have now is the, holding the balance of power. But forming government seems a, a leap much too far for them because there's just not enough lefties in Canada to vote for them. Um, it's not easy to be in that position and to defy or denounce the people who got you the job. Let me be specific. Uh, Jagmeet Singh won the leadership of the New Democratic Party, the leftist, leftist party we're speaking about, won that leadership with the assistance of many new members signed up for the party for the purpose of the leadership race. And many of those came from the Dashmash Delbar Temple, Gurdwara, in Surrey, British Columbia, where the martyr posters of Talvinda Pama hang on the walls permanently. So he wouldn't be the leader of the New Democratic Party, most likely, if it were not for those supporters signed up as new members by that temple, across the street from which Jagmeet had his election headquarters, his leadership campaign headquarters in British Columbia. So every time he walked to his own campaign office in BC, where his own seat is, by the way, he would see that poster. Now, you've got to be a pretty brave politician to have these people work and vote and sign up new members for you to win the leadership and then go on TV the next day with a guy like me on CBC and say, yeah, it's, these guys are, are a disgrace. These people should not show posters of a mass murderer. I denounced that. So that's why he refused five invitations that I gave him in that interview that you've mentioned to denounce the display of martyr posters of the Air India bomber. It's, it, it, you know, look at it from his point of view. He's a politician under a lot of pressure. Yeah, but don't you think this incentivizes the worst thing in politics? So yes. what if every community yes. starts doing the same then? And yeah. it's just, you know... Well, it, it, it's an abomination. I, I mean, uh, believe me, I'm not seeking to excuse it. I'm just trying to show you, what, what, to answer your question, why would he do this? Because it seems like, like madness. I mean, how hard can it be for a politician to denounce a mass murderer? The worst in Canada's history. How hard can that be? What would the price be exactly? Well, he could defy his own supporter. He could have a sister soldier moment, if you remember Bill Clinton's campaign in 91, 92, uh, and, and denounce the people who, who supported him. And thereby, Clinton won the race and won new supporters who were impressed that he did indeed have the guts to defy his own supporters in the Democratic Party. The, ex the extreme left of the Democratic Party, and perhaps Jagmeet Singh would have gained uh, new public esteem among the wider public if he had done something similar uh, in that interview. Why it continues? Well, th there is there is still some bullying. I mean, remember we, we we've talked, for example, of two politicians who were reelected often in Canada: Dossange and Heyer. Well. Heyer's dad was murdered. Dessange was nearly murdered. 
A guy came mm-hmm. after him in a parking lot with an iron right. bar, beat him in the head, and he, he, he barely survived. He only survived because his law partner happened to come into the parking lot at the same moment, and the attacker ran off. So um, you, you have to be fairly brave to go against these people. Nowadays, they tend not to send men with baseball bats as they did for another one, Balraj Dio, in, in, in Toronto. He was a guy who uh, made the mistake. He was 28 years old, and he made the mistake of approving, uh, of supporting the Longer Wall Agreement. Most of your audience won't remember that, perhaps, but uh, that was a, a compromise agreement between the Sikhs and the government of Rajiv Gandhi uh, back in 85. And uh, uh, my friend Balraj Diol called a press conference jointly with some Hindu friends and said, let's give peace a chance, let's support this agreement. And he was met in his parking lot by five young men with baseball bats and hockey sticks who beat him nearly to death. So, you know, it's fine for us now to sit in our comfortable chairs decades later in the age of the Internet and say, well, you know, why weren't more people brave? Why don't more people stand up to these guys? You've got to have some guts to do that. Well, talking about guts then, Terry, uh, you've done the documentary and now you've written this book. So I have to ask you, I mean, I was just looking at some of the comments towards you on social media. They're not pretty, are they? (laughs) Uh, Well, um, it's a good thing I've never courted popularity. Uh, um, It's true that, um, uh, I mean, I regard this for the reasons I've just described as a relatively trivial uh, occupational hazard being trashed on Twitter uh, doesn't somehow rate very highly when compared with having a head beaten in with baseball bats uh, by five lunatics uh, who went on, by the way, to commit massacres in Punjab, um, pulling Hindus off a bus and machine gunning them in the ditch without mercy. Uh, Same guys. Um, So now what they do is they trash you on Twitter and Facebook and they send lawyers to sue you. Uh, mm-hmm. th- this is an inconvenience, um, but it, it never goes anywhere. You mentioned that uh, documentary, I think it was actually 2007, uh, and there was a big lawsuit. Of a World Sikh organization sued me for $136 million. Well, that's, that's nothing. That's <laughs> Such nothing. A small amount. That's nothing to me, of course, but. but <clears throat> um, it, it, it petered out into nothing. They were never able to show anything that was actually wrong in the documentary. They said, oh, it's defamatory. Well, what's defamatory? Well, what, what, what did I say? And they never were able to find a single error. Nothing was ever changed. The thing is, it remains on the CBC website to this day. Or is it 14 years later? Uh, it, it, it's still there. And as we mentioned a moment ago, um, getting more audience thanks to the attacks. So nowadays, they don't send men with baseball bats. They send lawyers and they send keyboard warriors to call you a racist on Twitter. Um, It doesn't stick. It doesn't work. It's performative, by which I mean they are strutting and performing for the other members of their little echo chamber to show, look how tough I am. I'm fighting for us against them. 
and here's a white guy who doesn't like Khalistanis, let's beat him up. And, you know, and so they get applause from their tiny echo chamber. Uh, but I think that the estimate you gave a moment ago of, you know, maybe 10 or 12 percent of uh, uh, Sikhs in Canada are, are, are Khalistanis, I think it may be maybe high because uh, I have some experience in this. And I can tell you that when I look at my Twitter feed, I keep seeing the same eight guys. Same <laughs> eight, you know, it's, it's the same people again and again. So where are all the others, you know? The answer is they're bored with this like everybody else. They couldn't care less about Khalistan. They're trying to worry about getting the kids to school on time uh, and get ahead like everybody else. That's what the Sikh community is doing in Canada. They made a great name for themselves. They do a lot of community service. Uh, they're prominent in the professions. Uh, as they are all over the world, it tends to be a very successful community. There's just this little group that gives them a bad name, unfairly in my view. What, because, and there's a very pernicious way they do that. If you attack militant Khalistanis for endorsing violence, glorifying martyrs and so forth, if you attack Khalistanis, they say, ah, you're anti-Sikh. You're attacking Sikhs. Nobody said anything about Sikhs. We're talking about Khalistanis. It's as though I said, I'm, I'm against drunk driving. And the Drivers Association said, you're biased against drivers. Well, I didn't say anything about all drivers. I said drunk drivers. Or, you know, if I, if I condemn white supremacists and do all white people step up and say, well, you can't denounce white supremacists. That's an offense to all white people. This is nonsense. This is just complete babble. That would never happen. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but it does happen routinely with Khalistanis trying to, trying to cover themselves with the blanket of the whole of be, being the voice of the whole Sikh community. And that is another lie. Yeah, a couple of more things before I start taking the audio, audience questions. Okay, we have our own view in India as to why this particular phenomenon exists. But I wanted to maybe get your view from Canada too. Why don't the Khalistanis ever demand a Khalistan in Pakistan? <laughs> why is it so special about India? Well, I'll tell you the answer they give. Is that uh, Pakistan has never attacked and oppressed the Sikhs the way that India has and does. Now, I, 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 I see an expression of disbelief on your face, Kishab, uh, and uh, believe me, I, I share it. It's astonishing that they would make this argument at a time when, let's face it, Sikhs are still, I mean, this is like partition isn't over. I mean, they're still being driven out of Pakistan by the abductions of Sikh girls into forced marriages and forced conversions and attacks on Gurdwaras and discrimination against all kinds of religious minorities in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you look at historic Punjab, millions of, of Sikhs lived in what is now Pakistani Punjab, uh, which is the seat of Ranjit Singh's Sikh empire a couple of hundred years ago. And now all of Pakistan, there's maybe 10,000 Sikhs. Uh, it's hard to get exact numbers, maybe less. Why are they leaving? Why, why, where have they gone? <laughs> They've gone to India. 
So the answer that they give to the question you raised is that, well, we're not seeking Khalistan inside Pakistan because they're not the enemy. India is the enemy. So we're going to try to, to end the Indian occupation of Punjab, but not the Pakistani occupation of Punjab. And when you say, well, um, uh, look, Lahore was the seat of Maharaja Ranjit Singh's empire. Nankana Sahib in Pakistan was the birthplace of Guru Nanak, no less, and on and on all the other important Sikh sites, sites which are fundamental to Sikh identity and culture and history. And they say, well, we want to have a referendum in places where there is a Sikh majority. So we have our country in, in, in a Sikh majority country. And that's not Pakistan. There's no Sikh majority there. So naturally, we're having our vote in Sikh majority areas in India. That's interesting. So why does the map of Khalistan include Himachal Pradesh, parts of Uttar Pradesh, Haryana, Rajasthan, Uttarakhand. I mean, it, you know, it, take a look. They recently issued a new map, yeah, including including all of the areas of all of the states I just mentioned. So that if there is a bare Sikh majority in Punjab itself, roughly fifty eight percent, about sixteen million Sikhs there currently in Punjab. Fine. But there's no Sikh majority in the areas that they've claimed in their map. So you have to wonder if they're really serious. You have to wonder, you know, when they say these things, oh, well, here's our answer. There's no Sikh majority in Pakistan. That's why we're not seeking to have a chunk of Pakistan as part of Khalistan. They're not making any sense. And you have to wonder, are they yeah. even trying? You have to wonder, are they even trying to make sense? I, I don't think so. They're never known for making sense. That's not their uh, that's not their strong point, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But uh, I think it would be a mistake if I did not ask you about uh, the victims of the Air India bombing. Uh, you know, you sh uh, if I remember correctly, I want to get the name right in my notes here. Dr. Chandrasekhar Sankuratri uh, obviously is one of them who you know you you kind of end the book with his story too. Yeah. Um, but but just. Tell us a little bit about your experience over the years of, you know, meeting the families who lost their near and dear ones. And and how do they feel when they go to Canada and they see the Canadian justice system betraying them? Because this is nothing short of a betrayal. Uh, th th those images, you know, if you see the videos uh, of, you know, when... Uh, there was a committee going on. I think it was eight or nine, uh, 2008 or 2010 or 2012. I don't remember the exact year when the fire, one of the reports was coming out. And and the expression on the faces of each and every person, you know, the trials and tribulations that so many families and so many individuals have gone through. And you've been meeting so many of them for so many years. Could you tell us a little bit about that too? Um, this is a powerful motivating force, of course, in <clears throat> writing the book at all. Because over the years I've become friends with many of the families, <clears throat> and they've <clears throat> they've helped me a great deal <clears throat> in understanding how they were let down by their adopted country, in most cases, 
And <clears throat> they've told some truly horrifying stories. Um, but what stays with me is often the little things. I mentioned that there were 33 Sikhs on Air India. I mean, the people who blew up the plane really didn't give a damn who was on the plane. They didn't even know. They didn't care. Oh, sure, kill a bunch of Sikhs. Why not? Uh, one of them was the wife of Kalwant Mamak, who testified, and he was answered at, at the judicial inquiry in Ottawa, which is the commission that you mentioned. And he was asked, what would you like to come out of this inquiry? And he said, justice, justice for the families. And of course, he never got that. And he described, you know, what is it like being a single dad of three young children? Their mother has been blown up, blown out of the sky. And he told a very simple story, you know, how his kids would say, dad, please, not McDonald's again tonight. Can you cook something? And he said, I don't know how to cook. But the story didn't end there. Over the years since then, he learned how to cook. In fact, he got very good at it. So it was a story about overcoming loss, but you can't get past the loss. And the, re the reason I ended the book, as you mentioned, with the story of Dr. Chandrasekhar Sankaratri in uh, Kakinada in uh, Andhra Pradesh, he was a, he is a, quite a brilliant man who's a government biologist in Canada, and he put his wife and two children on Air India to go for a vacation in India. And for three years, he wandered the coast of Ireland, thinking somehow they might reappear. His life had no meaning. He didn't know what to do with himself. So finally, he decided, look, I'm going to do something with my life. Went back to India, set up a charity operation, set up a school and an eye clinic. And now he's done, I don't know, a quarter of a million cataract surgeries for free for the poor people around his neighborhood of Kakinada. And he described how it's not about, in his view, blood for blood. In his view, that's not something a philosophy to live by, revenge. He didn't follow the trial. He wasn't obsessed with punishing the guilty and feeling bad about it all. He was interested in getting on with his life and doing something useful with his life, rather than becoming obsessed and twisted and bitter about getting revenge. Another, Pervis Madden, whose husband, Sam, was on the plane, described me just last week how she and the other families had had to learn to let go of their anger. You know, as the decades wore on, obviously they were angry. They were furious about the shenanigans of the failed investigation and the failed trial and the many other, and the continuing atrocity of the glorification of the people who slaughtered their loved ones. But you've got to let it go, she said. So I've learned a lot about blood for blood, about what a bankrupt philosophy that is uh, from the families. And I think we all owe, owe them a debt, not least for the grace with which they bore their loss. Because through all the years, I have not seen angry demonstrations on Parliament Hill demanding justice and denouncing the politicians and hurling 
insults at them, however much they may be deserved. I haven't seen that sort of anger and desire for revenge from the families. And I think we can all learn something from that. I hope so. Yeah. So, Terry, I'm going to take a few questions from our live viewers now. So someone's asked, uh, Terry, how do you see things going in the next 10 to 20 years in regards to the Khalistani movement in Canada? And what steps uh, can maybe, okay, this person is saying, what steps can the Indian state do to maybe look at the Khalistani movement in Canada? So, so what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of decades? Well, I think it hangs in the balance now because there is this crescendo on social media uh, because of the referendum campaign to revive the old hatreds, to vilify the fascist, genocidal, murderous government of India, uh, to vilify anyone who stands against the Khalistanis, uh, to rally more anger, to try to get out the vote for the referendum. Uh, and so they're embedding their lies in social media and they're mobbing people who push back. There was a case recently, a friend of mine in New York, uh, he was banned on Twitter. His account was suspended because he had pushed back against some Khalistani propaganda, uh, not by hatred and anger, but in fact by offering citations of actual facts, saying what you said was wrong, here's why, Here's one reference. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here are contemporary accounts. Here are independent reports saying that what you just said is false. That's, that's all within the Twitter, Twitter rules. But Twitter didn't have a human look at it. They received organized mass reporting, all saying this guy's hateful. He's hateful. He's hateful. The computer just sees big numbers. Well, everyone says he's hateful. He must be hateful. So they banned him. What was what provoked this? It wasn't in his response. So, the first answer to your question is that I see this getting worse. I see the attack on social media, the attempt to revive these old hatreds, to vilify the government of India, to falsify history, to glorify martyred murderers. And let's remember, they are murderers. Uh, this is gathering steam. On the other hand, as I said a moment ago, or suggested anyway, they seem to be talking largely to themselves. They, they're creating a lot of noise among their own echo chamber, but are they reaching outside that echo chamber to convince more Sikhs to become Khalistanis? That, I think, is very questionable. And I think there's one uh, area you implied that the Indian government might have something to say about all of this. One area in which, which they might consider, and I get into a lot of trouble in Indian media for saying this, is why they're in India. So a lot of what I've just said, for example, about the glorification of martyred murderers and all of that stuff, isn't available to your Indian viewers because their websites, the Seats for Justice, for example, they're banned. And their leader, Gopatwan Singh Panoon from New York, he's labeled a terrorist, is he not? So people don't see for themselves 
the absolute toxicity. I mean, if Indians knew more about the fact, for example, that Sikhs for Justice publicly announced with glamorous posters that they were going to name their voter registration site for the referendum in British Columbia, the Tavinda Parma voter registration site. They were going to, with a big poster of Parma. Now, if Indians knew that, if they knew that they were still glorifying the assassins of Indira Gandhi and the assassins of General Vaidya and the assassins of Bayant Singh, if they knew all of that, would that enhance the standing of Sikhs for Justice? I doubt it. I think people are entitled to see the truth of what these people are about, and that is what they're about. What I'm saying about their veneration of martyred murderers, this is not a, an occasional thing. This is a constant thing. Every month you see a new video. The last one I, I, I mentioned was called I Am Dilawa. This featured Gopatran Singh Panun, the leader of Sikhs for Justice, standing in front of a screen saying, I am Dilawa with flames and bombs and lightning. Dilawa Singh, of course, was the assassin who blew up Chief Minister Bayant Singh in Punjab in 1995, August of 1995. And the point of the video was to threaten first Captain Amarinder Singh, then Chief Minister, and then more recently Charanjit Chani, that they might suffer the same fate. Now, I don't think the ban making these people illegal necessarily helps India. Because if Indians saw that for themselves, uh, do you mean to tell me that that's going to make them love Sikhs for justice more? That they might say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go and vote in the referendum and for a separate state that will be governed by the people who are glorifying terrorists. I, I just don't think so. I think uh, uh, lifting that ban, particularly when, look, we, we discussed the voting numbers in Punjab, right? 0.3% of the vote. I mean, the vote has been going nowhere for separatism in Punjab for 30 years. And you're afraid that you might lose if people see their publicity? No. You, you'll, you'll win anyway, but because there's an overwhelming support for Indian unity in Punjab, why ban them? Let people see what they're really about. Yeah, free speech is not a thing in India. <laughs> we don't believe in that. It's always been uh, there. I think in India, we, uh, we don't seem to believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant when it comes to speech. Uh, they just don't believe in it. Uh, they just like to clamp down on things. So there is what it is. Now, um, this is... I don't know if you're aware of this angle, but I'll still ask the question. Um, so obviously, you know, caste and casteism is a huge, huge, huge aspect of Indian society. But um, a lot of people, I don't know. I mean, so even within the Sikh community in Punjab, this is a Jat Sikh phenomenon, right? Uh, yes. Or, or has it, it, it's not percolated, let's say, to the Ramgadiyas or the Ravidasiyas or all the other communities, right? I, I am told not. I'm not an authority on this, but I am told it remains a judge seat thing in Canada and around the world. All right. So I, I, I just wanted to confirm uh, this from you. So again, the, this question, I think, is from a Canadian native uh, Punjabi. So they're asking, 
it doesn't take a lot to radicalize the youth or maybe they're asking does it take a lot to radicalize you you just move them to canada feed them the hateful narrative every day in the gurdwara for one two years uh how can the canadian government tackle this front uh, i i can answer this because your book gives the most depressing answer where the canadian government is just pouring money to gurdwaras who preach this hateful narrative yeah they uh, well uh they they're tolerating it and looking the other way uh which is uh not quite as bad as pouring money into their gurdwaras for example i mentioned the dashmet bar gurdwara in sorry i looked i don't think they had their charitable status restored by the uh taxman in canada i could be wrong about that uh, but um the the answer is no as far as i know governments in canada are not pouring money into these radical gurdwaras uh they're simply tolerating what they do and say and they're tolerating i mean in the name of free speech i mean they have the right if they wish to put up a poster of towenda parman say he's a great hero that's not illegal in canada uh, and and there's always a great deal of frustration uh on the part of indian politicians when there are bilateral meetings you mentioned trudeau's visit in 2018 to new delhi uh and the uh, fashion and other disasters that that incurred but there's always a great deal of frustration on the part of indian politicians about canada's failure to crack down on these people who are uh proselytizing for khalistan in canada what 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 exactly do they want canada to do do they want canada to abandon free speech that's not going to happen and we have to make a distinction between uh compelling someone to shut up and answering them there's a dis- there's a difference i'm not i have freedom of speech we 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 talked about this half an hour ago i have free speech i'm allowed to step up and say i think that the glorification of martyrs uh of murderers uh in Canada is a disgrace that doesn't mean i think they should be locked up and it doesn't mean that uh, they they've done anything illegal it means that i disagree with their opinion uh, and it remains open as i said earlier for politicians to refuse to go to the celebrations which show such posters i think that's what they should be should be doing and i know indians don't like it when i say oh let the khalistanis have free speech let them have their referendum they say no that's again haven't you read the indian constitution terry they said which doesn't allow the breakup of the country well that's perfectly true the uh, there's a fair argument the indian constitution requires the government to preserve the integrity and unity of the country sorry but i'm not bound by the indian constitution i'm a free speech absolutist and i think they should have freedom of speech i know there's a disagreement about that but uh, i i i picked my lane i'm going to stay in it well i'm on your lane and uh, unfortunately for a lot of indians i am in the same boat <laughs> they hate me for supporting speech okay that's uh, two of us even when it is yeah i mean i say when you know religion should be criticized they don't like it <laughs> well it is what it is okay so th- these a lot of people have asked this question what are the active steps that are being taken if you know of them by the canadian government i'm not talking about ceases because obviously that is something that you know ceases is not going to talk about it but as far as the canadian government is concerned are there any active programs that 
actually goes out and does community outreach amongst the Sikh community to actually de-radicalize young kids? Uh, to my knowledge, no. Um, and it, 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 you know, it's an extremely problematic area. How do they know which kids are being radicalized? What do you think these kids are going to say? Hey, I'm being radicalized. Come and educate me. Uh, I don't think that's how it works. Uh, the government doesn't have those resources. The government would be opposed by the managements of the Gurdwaras and the self-appointed leadership of the Sikh community, which has a tremendous influence over the government to the point that they're even able to edit official government reports on security matters. You'll remember, of course, that there was a notorious yeah. case uh, uh, a couple of years ago where uh, the government issued a report naming Khalistani terrorism as a danger and uh, the, the Sikh community representatives self-appointed, uh, no evidence they actually do represent the Sikh community, but they said they did. And that was enough for the government. They made a noise about it and say, oh, no, you can't say that. And so the government edited and changed uh, a professional national security report in order to accommodate these people. So the prospect that the government is going to send out squads of educators to de-radicalize kids, I think is extremely remote. It's not going to happen. And I think it presents a whole lot of obstacles. But politicians can and should lead by example. Politicians should step up and say out loud what they perhaps privately think but are too scared to say. That the propagation of martyr worship, murderer worship, and lies is not acceptable. And they should speak up about it and denounce it. That is fair to accept. The rest, you know, I, 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 I don't even know how the government would identify kids which have been radicalized. Fair enough. So uh, this question is very interesting because people, uh, and I'll ask you in two parts. So how much of the actions, let's say, of Indian governments, so Obviously, you interviewed Indira Gandhi. I think it was in 1967. So, yeah. so one question is about what, what kind of a role did maybe the Indian government and its actions, let's say, you know, Indira Gandhi and the whole, you know, the creation of Bangladesh at that time, and maybe today with the current Modi government and the whole farmer laws and how much of incidents like this maybe during, um, okay, we know, you know, Indira Gandhi and Bangladesh and the Pakistani role in the whole thing, maybe how Indira Gandhi handled the entire Punjab thing itself is, you know, it's it's a part of history. But sitting in Canada, how much do you think, you know, the work done by Indian governments, let's say it's the current government and the farm laws, how much of air does it give to the Khalistani movement in Canada? Um, well, I think that the Khalistani movement exploits it to the full. Uh, and... Uh, uh, let's face it, there is some justice in what they say. And uh, another unpopular thing uh, to say, but let's face it, uh, the, uh, I, I quote no less an authority than KPS Gill, a reviled figure of the police chief in Punjab, reviled for his brutal methods in suppressing the Khalistan movement, uh, who said, uh, I'm quoting him vaguely, uh, that the uh, the two operations, the attack on the Golden Temple in 84 and the unforgivable massacres of Sikhs in New Delhi and elsewhere around the country following the assassination of Indira Gandhi, these were the two greatest gifts 
Gill said to the Khalistan movement. I mean, let, let, let's not tiptoe around this. Uh, it, it's not as though there's no reason at all for the explosion of anger worldwide about what the Indian government was doing, because it's true. As a neutral observer, I, 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 I've looked at it. It is simply true and unforgivable that for decades, the complicity of the police and senior officials of the Congress party was covered up in those massacres, in the, the, those 1984 massacres. So you cannot say that there's no reason for the anger uh, of, of, of those who lost loved ones. Um, but what the other side of the question is also important. Right now, I mentioned a, a moment ago that there is a, a movement to revive the old hatreds, to vilify the Indian government as fascist and genocidal, and to magnify the abuses um, beyond all reason. Uh, for example, it is commonly said by Panun in his Sikhs for Justice referendum campaign that uh, Amritsar, the attack on the Golden Temple, that was also a genocide. 10,000 pilgrims were herded into the Golden Temple, he says, to be massacred by the Indian army. Well, there's no contemporary account that speaks of anything like those numbers. It, 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 it's a wild exaggeration. He's spoiling his own case, which already exists just fine. There were plenty of people killed, enough to make it a, a disgrace, a national disgrace. But my point is simply that we must tell both sides of the story. And if you look at the reports, independent, outside reports by people who had no interest in this, Asia Watch, Human Rights Watch, Physicians for Human Rights, uh, NSAF, uh, Amnesty International, and on and on and on, I read them all and look at what they say. They interview actual named eyewitnesses. And these eyewitnesses tell time and time again, not just of abuses by the Punjab police, beatings, torture, extrajudicial executions. Yes, all that, all in those reports, all true. But also routine, constant, merciless massacres of both Sikh and Hindu civilians by the separatist militias. And they want to cover that all up. They want to lie about that all on social media today. So, oh, that didn't happen. That was all done by, by the Punjab police. They dressed up as Sikhs to, make it, to blame us. No, that didn't happen. That's not factual. What happened is that the separatists were uh, brutal and merciless towards civilians. And this is authenticated by dozens of outside investigators who told the truth about it. So that is what I say about the role of the Indian government. They both had a role. It's not about one side or the other doing terrible things. Both sides do terrible things. The point is, let's stop it. True. So Terry, this is my last question to you before we wrap up today's chat. Um, so I, I remember a 2000, 16 interview uh, of yours on CBC where uh, uh, this was, I think, your uh, when you were about to retire. Uh, it's, it's from then and you had said that this is an ongoing story and this is something that I think is, uh, uh, you know, work in progress. Obviously, you've written this book. Um, 
So if I was to ask you what's next, what is going to be next, Terry? Well, with luck, I'll never say another word about it and uh, I, I will uh, st stay retired. I'll have a more retiring retirement. Um, I, I don't plan to, uh, I mean, the, the focus on this particular story in my life as a journalist wasn't of my choosing. I spent far more time covering the Middle East. Uh, 1984, I was in Central America covering civil wars down there in Nicaragua and El Salvador. I, I spent a, a much of my career covering politics in the United States. I was, I was based in Washington for eight years. I was in the Middle East. I've been, there's just this one story which has become prominent in my retirement because of the objections to it, because of people trying to shut me up. And I don't take kindly to that. So I fight back. Uh, and no apology for that, but I'm hoping that what comes next is not uh, more of this. Uh, I, I, I think that I will emerge uh, only if there is another provocation uh, and uh, or fresh attacks, lawsuits, whatever, uh, I will reemerge and I will give as good as I get. Uh, but I would like this issue to die out. And I suspect that I have an opportunity uh, to be uh, correct, proved correct about that when the referendum crashes and burns. The referendum is a very suspect exercise. I mean, I, I, I have a friend in London who watched the so-called voting when it started at the end of October on the anniversary of the assassination of Indira Gandhi, 31st of October, not, not chosen by accident, to celebrate that assassination as a brave act of justice, which is how a Sikhs of Justice uh, describes it. That's their idea of justice. Um, and my friend in London noted that he had tried to register online to vote. And he registered as, uh, in the name of Angelina Jolie, the actress. <laughs> no problem. No problem at all. Fake phone number, fake location, Angelina Jolie. Ding. Yes. Okay. You're registered. So he can go, I guess, I have a wig. Uh, he can go and vote. He'll have to go wearing a padded bra. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's extremely questionable whether this vote is even plausible on its face. Number one. Number two, they put out in huge figures for, oh, yes, 30,000. No, 40,000 people have shown up. Uh, to vote. Well, uh, you know, that's sort of kind of impressive, except that 90% of the Sikh population of the UK did not show up. I mean, there are 400,000 Sikhs in the UK. So 10% of them showed up to vote. I don't believe that for a moment, but if they did, it means that on only 90% didn't care. So um, we will see. Maybe they'll do better elsewhere. Uh, but I I, I think the referendum is going to be a case, you know, the old story of the dog that caught the car. The dog cases the, chases the car, bark, bark, bark. What happens if the dog catches the car? Oh, now he's got a problem. So in this case, after years of, of, of publicity, we're going to have a referendum. We're going to have a referendum. Now they finally have the referendum a year late because of the pandemic then. And what do they get? They don't get a separate seat state. Not going to happen. And, uh, you know, if they don't get really impressive numbers, 
so what? So what if if ten percent do show up? Ten percent would be great. That'd be a, a huge achievement, and it would mean nothing. It would just mean that Sikhs, broadly speaking, don't give a damn about their referendum. We'll see. We'll see. True. Uh, I agree with you. It's it's an interesting journey. Anybody you know who's of Punjabi ethnicity would not. I, I've not met anyone who does not have horror stories from, you know, from family in Punjab. I mean, my case, I'm born and raised in Mumbai. Even my father was born and raised here. But, I mean, I've heard stories of the horror that both Hindus and Sikh uh, community folks have gone through in Punjab. I mean, it's very hard to find a family member inside Punjab yeah. uh, of, out of anyone who's not had a story of either some family member being kidnapped or somebody being shot at during that horror you know horrendous time in punjab so yeah it, it, it is what it is but uh, terry on behalf of uh, everybody who's going to be watching this or who listens to the charvak podcast and you know maybe uh, uh, us indians in general i want to thank you because uh, let me tell you i uh, this is a obviously being ethnically punjabi you're very passionate about this subject and i i would uh, you know read it a lot but I don't know how to say this, but you did the best, the best job at covering this. I wish, uh, you know, more Indians would have done this job. So uh, on behalf of everyone, Terry, thanks a lot for writing this book. Thank you. I enjoyed your show. This is very good. Very, very interesting questions. I appreciate it very much. And thanks to all your viewers for, uh, for uh, asking questions and probably submitting quite a few we didn't get to. Maybe we'll do another one and answer all the other ones. All right. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. Uh, I say this, uh, today is the 50th book review that I've done on the Charvak podcast and I couldn't have been happier to review this book. Uh, when I started to read this book, I finished it off in like a day and a half. I just could not put it down. I just kept on reading this. I really insist each and every one of you to go and buy this book. This book is probably the best coverage of this issue and I don't say this to you know, butter anyone up. Uh, you guys know when it comes to books, I'm very serious about it. I work hard. I read. I make my preparatory notes. And this book is a must read if you're an Indian. It, it takes no sides, which is what I liked about the book. It doesn't go on any side. It just goes on the side of the truth and what is morally right. And that's what I liked about this book. So if you go into the description, whether it's on YouTube or on Spotify or iTunes, wherever, there is a link. You please buy this book. I know we have, you know, this podcast has viewers from America, Canada, UK too. So what you guys can go and maybe check your Amazon links out over there. There is a Kindle edition of the book too. So please buy the book and please support the podcast too. Uh, like the video, subscribe to the channel, become a member on YouTube and I will see you next time. Until then, namaste, take care, bye-bye.